If you have your copy of God's Word with you, we'll be in Genesis chapter 49 this evening. Genesis chapter 49, we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 12. Uh, I'd like to say, first of all, it's just an honor to get to be here. I consider preaching the Word of God the greatest honor any man could have, and so it's a delight to be here with you and, and lead you in this time of looking at God's Word. Genesis 49 Begin reading in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to him in prayer and ask for his blessing. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we confess that without your help, without the work of your spirit, we have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear, mute tongues that will not sing your praise. So we ask for your spirit to come And be with us, come down upon us this evening. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to start our time off this evening with a simple question. If you had one thing left to say in this life, what would you say? If you could pick your last words? What would you want your last words to be? I think instinctively we understand the importance of last words. If you've only got one thing left to say to somebody, you're going to make it count. I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, and he gathers the Ephesian elders around him and this church of Ephesus that he spent years of his life pouring into And he tells them that it's the last time he's going to see them in this life. And he solemnly charges them to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to them. Or maybe if you're like me, you've had the experience of being gathered around a hospital or a hospice bed. And 
helping see a loved one off to the next life. And in those moments, you don't talk about sports, you don't talk about the weather, you don't talk about what you had for breakfast that morning, you talk about weighty things, you talk about important things, a precious memory that brings comfort. Maybe you sing some hymns or pray with them or talk about the glories of heaven that is to come. Well, in our text this, this evening, we find a similar situation. Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, has now followed his son Joseph and brought his family with him into the land of Egypt. They've gone down into Egypt out of Canaan with the blessing of God Almighty. And now Jacob is an old man, and he is on his deathbed, and he's gathering his sons around, them, around him to give them some last words. But what's interesting here, though, is that Jacob... He doesn't just give some well wishes. He doesn't just offer some prognostications or some hopes. This is what I think might happen to you possibly. Or he doesn't hand down a last will and testament. Jacob does something different. He acts like a prophet. If you notice back in verse 1, it says that Jacob is going to tell them what will happen in days to come. He doesn't say, this is what I hope is going to happen to you, my sons. Jacob doesn't say, this is what I think is going to happen. He doesn't say, uh, well, I, I know all of you, and I know how things tend to turn out, and so I can predict this is how all of you are going to turn out in years to come. No, Jacob says, I'm going to tell you what's about to happen to you. He's acting like a prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, predicting what's going to happen in the history of his 12 sons. But even more than that, if you'll notice what Jacob prophesies to them, he says in verse 1, at the end of the verse, I'm going to tell you what shall happen to you in days to come, in days to come. And now that expression, in days to come, you could more literally translate it if you wanted to, in the latter days, which is how you find it oftentimes throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew expression that's usually reserved for prophecies, and prophecies, predicting the future. And particularly, it usually occurs in context talking about what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, that great final climactic day in which God will come down and He will judge the wicked and He will vindicate the righteous and He will gather His people to Himself and establish His kingly reign here on earth, the day of the Lord. And so this phrase, when Jacob says, I'm going to tell you what's about to happen in days to come, he's thinking about the distant future. But now this phrase is also what one commentator calls a thick expression. That is that Jacob isn't just talking about the history of Israel. He's not just talking about the near future. He's talking about both the near future and the far future. Near in the history of Israel, but also far off in the distant future, in what is ultimately the person and work of Jesus Christ. If, if you're like me, you've probably had the pleasure of driving or hiking through the mountains and going to the Smoky Mountains or driving along the Blue Ridge Parkway. And if you've been to the mountains, then you know that mountains can be deceptive. As you're far away and you see a mountain far off, it can look like one big mountain that you're about to approach. But as you get closer, you realize what you thought was one mountain is actually a mountain range, and what you saw from afar was actually one smaller mountain at the beginning of a range hiding a much bigger and larger mountain peak yet to come. 
And that's a bit like what Jacob is saying to his sons here. He's saying that they have a near future that they're about to go to, that he can see with God-given binoculars. And yet there is an even greater and farther future yet to come. So, what does Jacob prophesy then? What is this near future and what is this far future? Simply put, when he prophesies to Judah, he is telling them that God is going to establish his kingly rule on earth through the person of Judah. He is going to establish his kingly rule on earth through the person of Judah. And we're going to see that that finds both near and far fulfillment. Near in the history of Israel and far off in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, what are the specifics of the prophecy? Well, first look at verse 8 and see what kind of king that Jacob is looking forward to. Verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So of all the sons of Jacob, from Reuben all the way down to the youngest Benjamin, Jacob is saying, Judah is going to be the preeminent one. Judah, of my 12 sons, son number four, Judah, he's going to have the preeminence. He is going to poke his head up above the others and have the most prominence. And all of my sons are going to look to Judah as the leader of the 12. But how does he do this? Look again in the middle of verse 8. Verse 8, we have almost a a three-part structure. We begin with Judah, Judah and his brothers praising him. We end with his brothers praising him. And in the middle, pointing to this idea that your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So how is Judah going to gain preeminence? He's going to gain preeminence by being a warrior. Judah is going to be a warrior king. He's going to conquer his enemies. He's going to go out in military might. And that is how he will gain the respect and the honor of his brothers. And as Israelite history unfolds, this is exactly what we see happening. Even when the Israelites become a great nation, numbering in the hundreds of thousands and into the millions, Judah is the most important of all the twelve tribes. In the book of Numbers, for instance, as Israel is traveling throughout the wilderness, who leads the way? It's Judah. Judah is the first to set out when they go to a new place. Judah is the first to encamp when they reach a new position. And it's Judah that's leading the people of Israel all throughout the wilderness in the book of Numbers. And when they come to the land of Canaan, in the book of Judges, we read in Judges chapter 1, that the people are praying and they're asking God after they've started the conquest under Joshua and they're about to go in and they're about to finish conquering the land of Canaan, the promised land that God has given them. The people pray and they ask God, who will go before us? Who is going to lead the way and finish conquering the land? And God says, Judah. I want Judah to go forth. I want Judah to lead my people into the land of promise, to be my tool for wiping out my enemies and bringing my people into the inheritance that I have for them. And this preeminence, this military preeminence of Judah finds its fullest expression in the person of King David. Look here at verse 9 again. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. 
Who dares rouse him? So the picture we have here is, is a, a fierce lion. Judah is going to be a lion. A lion that goes out and it goes on the hunt. And with efficient uh, ferocity, it captures and it kills its prey and it feasts on its prey and he goes back to its den and it's lying in rest after the hunt. And it's shown itself to be so fierce that only a fool would dare rouse this lion. And we see this happening in the person of King David. David, a small shepherd boy from the town of Bethlehem. And yet, this shepherd boy becomes a conquering military king. We're all familiar, I'm sure, if we've grown up in church with 1 Samuel chapter 17 and the story of David and Goliath. And David, this shepherd boy, faces the pagan Philistine champion Goliath who has been mocking the God of Israel and in the name of his pagan Philistine gods. And David kills Goliath, not in his own strength, but in the strength and in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. And on and on throughout the rest of the book of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel, we see David in military conquest after military conquest after military conquest. And by the time David's life is over, he has conquered most of his enemies. Israel is beginning to reach a point of peace because of the military power of King David. And by the end of his reign, we could say that David as verse 9 says, um, in verse 8, David has his hand on the neck of his enemies, and he has been used as an instrument of God to bring God's enemies into submission. So now, if this is the king that is being prophesied here, then we might want to ask, what is his reign like? Is this king uh, going to have a short-lived reign, a long-lived reign? Well, verse 10 tells us. Verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, in the United States, we don't have kings and queens. We don't have scepters, although I'm sure many of us are familiar with this idea of a scepter. Even You can just look across the pond at the United Kingdom and see the monarchy there. They still have a monarchy, or I'm sure many of us grew up reading uh, children's books about knights and dragons and things, and there's always a, a lordly king or queen in those children's books, and they're sitting on a big regal throne, and they've, they've got that scepter in their right hand. And what is that scepter? What's the point of that scepter? That scepter is a symbol of kingly power, of kingly authority. The one who holds the scepter is the one who rules the people. And what Jacob is saying here is that the scepter, that royal power, is not going to depart from Judah. So it's not going to start the kingship, the monarchy of Israel. It's not going to start in Judah and then pass along from family to family. It's not going to start in Judah and then go on to Zebulon and Issachar and Dan and work its way around the circle of the 12 brothers. No, it stays in the family. In fact, we get this picture here of the scepter lying between the feet. It's a picture of a monarch sitting comfortably on a throne. And the scepter is very peacefully resting because he's not fighting for it back and forth. He's not trying to win the scepter. No, it's firmly planted in the hands of Judah. 
And once again, as Israelite history unfolds, we see God is true to his word. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes and he makes a covenant with David. And he promises to be as a father to David, that David shall be as a son to him, and that he shall have a reign that lasts forever. That David will always have a son on the throne of the people of Israel. Even after the monarchy divides in, in the year 931 BC, and Israel splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, if you go through and just even just a cursory skim history um, reading of the history of the kings, I would encourage you to just skim through First and Second Kings and notice one of the key differences between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. If you read about all the monarchs and the kings in the northern kingdom, it doesn't stay in the line of David. It passes from people to people, and this person schemes against that person and takes away from their family, and now this family line has the kingship. And the promises are not for them. But David and his sons in the southern kingdom, it stays in the line of David. A son of David always has the throne, always has the kingship. In fact, if you were to survey the history of the ancient Near East, it's interesting. There's not a single dynasty you can point to that outlasts the dynasty of King David. All the pharaohs, all the Chinese dynasties, all these ancient emperors in Babylon and Assyria and all these surrounding places, none of them have a single family line that can last as long as David's line lasts. So we see that God is true to his word. But now what is life like under this king then? We see that Jacob is prophesying that there's going to be a king from Judah and that it's going to stay in the family, that Judah's going to reign forever. But we may ask the question, well, is this king a, a benevolent king or is he an iron-fisted dictator? Or would he expect a Stalin or a Hitler-like figure or someone who loves their people? And again, we see what's happening here. We see what kind of reign um, this king is going to have in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says that an Israelite, that Judah is going to be binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, what's the picture here? The picture is abundance, in the Old Testament, wine generally is a symbol of blessing, and God talks about having an abundance of wine as a symbol of great harvest and a great agricultural society. You must remember, Israel's an agricultural society. They farm for a living. And so to have an abundance of wine and grapes is to have a really good harvest, to have plenty left over. The picture here is a, is a land where the king's provision is so bountiful that the vines are so thick you could tie a donkey to them. They're so plentiful that you don't even have to worry about the donkey eating these precious grapevines and these precious grapes. Wine is so abundant that you can wash your clothes in it. It's like water. You're not even giving a second thought to just throwing it away. The land is so wealthy and the king's provision is so awesome and life is so good. And as Israelite history unfolds, this again is exactly what we see happening, God being true to his word. Under King Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21, it says that silver was so common in, in Solomon's day, it was counted as nothing. Silver, a precious metal, is nothing 
It's commonplace. Solomon's brought in so many riches and so much wealth and blessing into the land of Israel that silver is nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, we could even say that under the reign of King Solomon, Israel has reached that first mountain peak, that first fulfillment, that near fulfillment of what God had promised his people. And yet, even as soon as they reach that first peak, it very quickly becomes apparent that there's got to be more, that there's more yet to come. This can't be the final fulfillment of the promises of God. Because the the power of Israel that waxed under King David, it begins to wane, and Israel becomes a ping-pong ball, bouncing back and forth between surrounding empires and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans do whatever they want with the people of Israel. They don't come paying homage to the, to the, to the people of God and to the, the God of Israel. They come making war. In the year 586 B.C., Babylon comes in, and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, the place where the king of Judah sat. And they starve out the people, and the people who once enjoyed wealth and abundance under Solomon are now starving to death and dying in warfare. And the temple that represented God's presence is razed to the ground. And they're taken out of the land of promise and exile into a foreign land. They don't have a king of Judah who has true sovereignty anymore. No, the, the emperor of Babylon sets up a puppet king. There's a ruler in Judah from the line of David, but he doesn't have any true sovereignty over this land. Now, for just a moment, pause and consider what it would be like to be an Israelite living through that. Put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine how it would feel to see these promises, to know all the way back in Genesis 49, before the people were even taken out of Egypt in the Exodus, God had promised that he would bring a king through Judah and that life would be good under this king. But now what's happened? There's no true king anymore. Friends, family, loved ones are dead. There's no prosperity People are taken out of the land of promise. How would you feel in that moment? You think you would doubt God's goodness, his faithfulness, the truthfulness of his promises? We all go through times like that. We all go through those dark valleys, what many authors call the the dark night of the soul, that place where it feels like God's promises are no good where he's far away. For some of you, that's been very recent. Some of you may still be going through a place like that. For some of you, you may see it coming up ahead or maybe around the corner. You don't even know. What do we do in times like that? How do we handle those dark nights of the soul? Brothers and sisters, I would first and foremost just point you to God's past faithfulness. In Genesis 49, God did what he said he would do. God fulfilled his promises. We need to look back at God's past faithfulness to reassure us of his present faithfulness. 
because God is true to his word. He did what he said he would do. He put a king of Judah on the throne, and he brought wealth and abundance through that king, and that king's reign and that line lasted for centuries. We need to remember this, brothers and sisters. Our experiences do not negate the unshakable character and the faithfulness of God and his word. Does God seem distant to you this evening? He has promised he will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus promised in Matthew 28, 20, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Is there a temptation in your life, perhaps, that just seems like you cannot overcome it, that it is dogging you, that it will not leave you alone? God has promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Maybe you're here this evening and you feel like you don't have the energy to make it one more day. Your resources are just completely drained. God has promised in Philippians 4.19 that he will provide your every need through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God has shown himself to be faithful in the past and we can trust him to be faithful in the present. Now, you may be saying at this point, that sounds good. And I know those promises are true, and I feel that they are true, and I'm praying that they would be true in my life and that God would make me feel them true. But surely this isn't it, right? I mean, this can't be it. Isn't there more? And I would say, yes, there is more. There is always more, and there is always a greater fulfillment yet to come because like Israel, we have in a sense reached that first mountain, but there is still something greater to come Remember that the close of the Old Testament is not the close of the fulfillment of the promises of Genesis 49. Because after 400 years of prophetic silence and foreign rule under a pagan king, a little baby boy is born in the city of David in the town of Bethlehem. And that boy, the angel Gabriel, comes to marry his mother. And in Luke 1.32 says, Mary, this child that you are bearing will be given the throne of his father, David. And as this boy Jesus grows and begins his public ministry, going throughout the regions of Galilee, Mark 1.15 says that Jesus went about proclaiming, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, there is only one reason that Jesus can proclaim that the kingdom is here, and that is because the king has come. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has emerged from his den and has come into this world to inaugurate his kingdom here on earth. And just as God promised through Jacob that Judah would gain the preeminence over his brothers, Jesus is now our brother. He is our older brother. Romans 8 calls him the firstborn among many brothers. And we do not simply honor him as an older brother. We do not simply respect him. We worship him. He who is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, having the greatest honor anyone could give their brother. 
Even now, this lion of the tribe of Judah, he is crouching at the door, dividing this world into the next, and he is waiting to spring into this world and to fully establish his kingdom on earth and to fully fulfill his promises. And until that day comes, we do not wait for him to begin reigning. He's already begun reigning. He came in his first coming to inaugurate his kingdom, to begin his kingdom on earth earth. Think about, if you will, of all the world empires that have existed over the past 2,000 years since Jesus came to this earth. The Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, innumerable Far Eastern and Chinese and Japanese empires and dynasties, or Napoleon, or the British Empire, all the Western monarchies, the Tsars, the Kaisers, All are confined to the dustbin of history. All are a memory. And yet for the past 2,000 years, there has not ceased to be a people on this earth who call Jesus King and who worship him as Lord and King. Consider also just the limited scope of the world empires that we've all seen for the past 2,000 years. There's been many great and powerful and wide-reaching empires, but there's only one that can claim to be a global empire. Even the vast British empire, as far as it's stretched, could never claim the true obedience of the peoples. And yet, Genesis 49 says... Uh, 49 verse 10, to him, that is Jesus, ultimately, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not the people, the peoples with an S, plural. Not just Israel, but all the surrounding nations. People from every corner of the globe. Jesus' kingdom is a global kingdom. And he is sending his gospel out even as we are gathered here tonight to every corner of the globe. And he is using his church and he is building his church and he is sending his gospel to every remote corner of this world. And no matter where you go in this world, from Japan to China to the Middle East and Africa and Western Europe and the Americas and the farthest corners of the globe, you will find a people who confess the name of Jesus Christ and who worship him as Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, we live in what are undoubtedly very divisive times, very politically polarizing and charged times, and times of very much great societal upheaval. How do we take comfort in times like that? We need to look to our king, and we need to remember what kind of king we have, and we need to remember what kind of kingdom he rules over, and how sure it is. We don't worship a king who can only muster up a small bit of support from a little group of people over here. No, we worship a king with a global kingdom. We worship a king with Chinese subjects and African subjects, and Ukrainian subjects, and British subjects, and American subjects, and Latino subjects, and Filipino subjects, and peoples from all over the world, because he is a great king, and all peoples of all the earth 
can gladly look to him as a king, and his kingdom has reigned for the past 2,000 years. Even our own country, the United States, there's no guarantee that the United States will last forever. But there is something that lasts forever. There is a kingdom that lasts forever that will endure. And if you are a blood-bought child of the king, then you are a member of that kingdom and you have a true kingdom and a citizenship that cannot be taken away from you and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that is something that you can hold on to, an anchor that you can use in your life no matter what you see going on around you. But what is life like under King Jesus? If he is reigning forever, if we are worshiping him as not just an older brother, but as Lord, as God, what is the provision of this king like? Solomon could bring in so much wealth into the land of Israel that silver was counted as nothing. What does Jesus do? Well, consider, first of all, his material provision. Every dollar in your bank account Every breath you take, every scrap of food you eat is a provision from King Jesus, your loving, benevolent King. He's given every bit of it to you. And in this life, as we wait for him to come again one day, his kingdom is primarily a spiritual kingdom. One day he will create a new heavens and a new earth, but until that day comes, His kingdom is primarily spiritual, and as such, he has given us spiritual provision for that kingdom. And he has done this, first and foremost, most preeminently by giving us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who lives and abides in each and every one of God's children. God himself, living within his people, living within his church, dwelling in his church as a temple of the living God. And it's because of this abundant provision of the Holy Spirit that we cannot just be sure of Jesus' kingdom, that we cannot just take comfort, but that we can endure through this life. We don't just scrape by this life holding on to the the last bit of hope that we can muster up. No, we endure with the abundant provision of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that Romans 8 says strengthens our weak prayers, who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is there praying with us and helping us pray and strengthening our prayers and bringing them to God. It is the Holy Spirit that Galatians 5 says is warring against our flesh and sanctifying us and perfecting us and making us look like our Lord and King. It is the Holy Spirit who Romans 8 says is reminding us of our adoption as sons. The Spirit cries in our hearts, Abba, Father, and reminds us that we're not just subjects. We're adopted, blood-bought sons and daughters of God Most High. And it is the Holy Spirit working within us who pours out all these reminders and helps and aids in our life, which makes, reminds us that we can endure And in fact, most importantly, Ephesians 1.14 tells us that the Holy Spirit, his presence now is a reminder of his fuller presence in the kingdom to come. He is a guarantee of our future inheritance of a future kingdom. And that is what we need to anchor our greatest hopes in, brothers and sisters. 
Think about this. Meditate on this. Pray that God would let this truth sink deeply into your heart, that you would meditate on it, that it would be real in your life, that this world is not all there is, and that there is a kingdom yet to come and the final consummate fulfillment of God's promises because one day the lion of the tribe of Judah will return to this world and he will cast the devil and his children into the lake of fire with the breath of his mouth. He will gather his people to himself and he will set up his throne, a man, Jesus Christ, reigning on earth. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will stream in to the heavenly throne room and they will bow the knee to King Jesus and they will cast their crowns at his feet and they will live in perfect communion with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need to be reminded of these things. Remind us of who our King is, King Jesus. And I pray that these words would sink deeply into our hearts, that they would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.